open up the word. Heavenly Father, we bow our heads and close our eyes. As we approach Christmas this year, we remember that you, our God, are a giver. The Christmas story begins and centers around your generosity. It all began with you giving your very best gift to us. Before the angels sang, before the shepherds started heading to Bethlehem, before Mary got the news, you decided out of your joy and love for each of us to give. Out of your hope for our lives and what would become, you moved, you made the most generous gesture humanity will ever know. You gave us your son. You didn't start by asking for our generosity. You started by demonstrating yours. And now, once we understand what you have given and how far you went to display your generous love, we no longer feel obligated to give out of guilt because guilt is not the point. Gratitude is. And so this holiday season, we choose to focus on your generosity toward us. Help us to respond by extending your love toward others. Help us to be generous. Help us to reflect you, our God, the greatest giver of all. In Jesus' name, amen. Something remarkably historic happened outside the city of Jerusalem this past Monday, December 10th. Perhaps you saw it in the news. A group of uh, Jewish religious leaders gathered as the reorganization of the Sanhedrin and consecrated a five-foot-tall, nine-foot-square stone altar that has been prepared for use in what they hope will be the third temple. At first, I thought this was fake news, but it turns out this really happened, and I tuned in and watched the live stream Monday morning, 10.30 a.m., our time. It included a full-dress reenactment of the daily offering by actual descendants of Aaron. They actually sacrificed a real lamb on the altar as the culmination of their celebration of Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication this year. Wow. What do we say to this as Christians? Well, we could say a couple of things. First, some of us might wonder if this is perhaps another step toward what will occur at the end of this age. We believe that many prophecies talk about another Jewish temple being built in the future where the Antichrist would be involved. So perhaps the return of the Lord is near. Secondly, we must also say that as Christians, this is actually not good. We don't follow this anymore. According to the New Testament, it's clear the whole sacrificial system is now obsolete. It has been superseded by the perfect, once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So in a sense, to go back to this whole ritual is a rejection of Jesus as the Messiah and an insult and a reproach to his finished work. But it does lead us to ask a rather interesting question. What is the solution to the problem of human sin? What is the solution to the problem of human sin? Uh, To get at this problem, let me just share with you a quote that I heard once, and it is stuck in my mind like a piece of glass from Scottish theologian James Denny. He says this, There is something in the conscience that will not allow it to believe that God will simply condone sin. There is something in the conscience that will not allow it to believe that God will simply condone sin. I believe that is so true. 
My experience as a pastor is that everybody wrestles with this at some point in their lives. Everyone. Now, not everybody wrestles with it in those terms, but they wrestle with it because there's this guilt. There's this shame. Everybody carries it around, and they don't know what to do with it. They don't know how to get rid of it. You've done things that you're just embarrassed about. There's that thing you did when you were younger. Or there's that thing you did way back in college. Or there's that thing that you did with the money. That thing at work. And you hope nobody ever asks you about that. And maybe nobody knows. But here's the problem. You know. You know. And so there's this guilt. And you try not to think about it. You try to forget about it. But the thing is, you can't forget about it. And it just kind of haunts you. It's always still there. Now, don't get me wrong. There are mistakes that we make in our past that are almost trivial, and we look back upon those, some of those kind of mistakes, and maybe we even laugh about it. We look back and we say, oh, yeah, you know, when I was young and stupid, I was so young and stupid. And we look back and we say, some of those things are even funny. But then there are other things in our past that we look back upon, and they are just not funny. They're never going to be funny. And we look back on those things and we go, that was sinful. And now I've got this weight that I carry around. It's like a cloud that I live underneath and I know I'm guilty. And you know what I found out as a pastor that even Christians wrestle with this. Even people who've heard about Jesus, who who know about his salvation, still wrestle with this feeling. Even though they know they've been forgiven, kind of like in their heads, deep down somewhere they still wonder, is there any way that I could actually feel forgiven? Like, is there a way that I could, it just, it's finished, it's, it's washed away, it's done, I'm all clean now? Is that even possible? Ladies and gentlemen, the answer to that probing question is what we want to look at today. As we continue in our sermon series called Messiah, the word Messiah means the anointed one. In the New Testament, the the Hebrew word Messiah is translated with the Greek word Christ, which means the exact same thing, the anointed one, okay? So it's not like Jesus was his first name and Christ was his last name, okay? It's not like on his driver's license, first name Jesus, last name Christ. No, Christ was a title. It was an office, and, and it meant the Messiah. It meant the anointed one. Over 500 times in the New Testament, he's called the Christ because that is who he claimed to be. You remember we learned that last week. He said, I who am speaking to you am he. And so we're looking at this series called Messiah, and there are three biblical offices that the Messiah was to fulfill. They are the offices of prophet, priest, and king. Or to use the words from Millard Erickson that Pastor Bob showed us last week, these three people were the revealer, the reconciler, and the ruler. But there was this Messiah figure that was prophesied and that they hoped would come. And he was going to be a combination of all these three offices in one person. And he would be the Messiah par excellence. And so today we want to look at his role as our priest, as our reconciler. Now let me just say this. We're about to look at something for the next few moments that could potentially completely alter our walk with God forever if we really understood this truth today. So I want to give it to you in two parts. If you want to follow along in your message notes, there's two parts to the the message today. We're going to talk about the identity of our high priest and the activity 
of our high priest. Identity and activity. So let's start with part one, his identity. Basic question, what exactly is a priest? The answer is that a priest was a mediator. A priest was a go-between. A priest was someone like referred to here in the book of Ezekiel, which says this, I searched for a man to stand in the gap. That's what a priest would do. They would stand in the gap. Now, maybe you've never had a priest, but I'll bet you've had some experience in your life where someone has stood in the gap for you. Maybe you hired a lawyer and they represented you. Or maybe you have a broker and they make financial decisions for you. Or maybe you had someone else in your life that just kind of stood in the gap in some other way. I know I have on a smaller scale. I remember one time in life, I I needed someone to stand in the gap and help me with a car problem I had. Now, I know car problems are not unusual in my life. I realize that. This time, my problem was that one of my blinkers was not working. It was not just the bulb. The problem was clearly more complicated than that, so I had to take it into the shop. They said it was the switch. I needed a new one. They put one in, and $500 later, it's always about $500, isn't it? I was on my way back home, but then literally on my way back home, the same blinker stopped working again. So frustrating. Thankfully, my father-in-law was around. I said, Dad, can you come outside and check this out with me? He said, sure. He takes a penny out of his pocket. He looks under the hood. 30 seconds later, he comes to me and says, Dave, I know what the problem is. I said, what in the world are you doing with that penny? He said, the problem is I'm making the positive connection on your battery a lot stronger. There's corrosion there, and it has been weakened as a result, and you know, it's affecting your battery. I said, okay. My dad said, you should, you should take it back to the shop. I said, ah, would you mind going with me? <laughs> He's like, sure. So off we went. I get to the shop. I go in the door. I walk up to the counter, and the guy, of course, recognizes me. I explained to him that the blinker was not working again and that I think that the work that he did didn't actually need to be done. But, and I know you're going to be really surprised by this, rather than admit his mistake, what he did was he tried to justify his decision he reached behind the counter and pulls out this gigantic electrical schematic of my car and starts to show me why he was right and I was wrong. The problem is, I have no idea how to read an electrical schematic for a car. I can't read that. That's when from behind me in the shadows, my mediator stepped out and stepped up to the counter now, my father-in-law is an electrician. He's a retired troubleshooter for the electrical parts at GM. And I wish I had a videotape of the next five minutes of my life. But I don't. And I can't even really explain it to you because I don't know what he was saying. But over the course of the next five minutes, my father-in-law very respectfully but yet very authoritatively explained to this rookie mechanic how exactly this thing on the screen here is supposed to work. And all I remember was him saying something about a magnetic field. I don't even know. I don't know. But I know this. At the end of the conversation, he convinced him to give me a refund. We went to Walmart, got a 99-cent steel brush, cleaned off the positive battery, and my blinker worked again. (laughs) 
here's the point I'm trying to make in that, that situation. He was, in a sense, a mediator for me. He stood in the gap. Now, friends, in a spiritual sense, you need someone, in a much greater sense, to stand in the gap for you, spiritually speaking. We all need what Job longed for in chapter 9 when he said this, Oh, that there was a mediator between God and man. Someone who could advocate for me. Someone who could step up for me. Someone who had both the knowledge and the ability to stand in on my behalf. Not just stepping up to the counter, but stepping up to the bench. Stepping up to the, the bench of divine justice. And someone to make a case on my behalf. That's what a priest is. That's what a priest does. How does a priest do that? Well, God had given very explicit instructions on how to do so. They're found in an ancient book written by Moses called Exodus. This is a little technical, but you have to understand it's very important because the scriptures teach that Jesus is our high priest forever. And if we don't understand what that means, then we won't fully be able to understand that, that whole concept. In Exodus 28, God gives Moses these instructions. And the first thing he says is you need to know the priest has to wear certain garments. I'll put them on the screen for you. Exodus 28.4, these are the garments they are to make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. They are to make these sacred garments for your brother Aaron and his sons, so they may serve me as priests. These clothes were for Aaron. Aaron was the first high priest. Clothing in the Bible has a very spiritual significance. Clothes make a statement. Even today, we know clothes make a statement. If you see a, a woman dressed in a beautiful white gown, you assume this woman's probably a bride. If you see a woman dressed in you know, a leather jacket and boots, you, you assume this woman's probably a biker chick, right? <laughs> if you see a human being walking outside and it's 20 degrees out, but they have no coat on, you assume that's a teenager, <laughs> right? Clothes make a statement. They tell you something about what's going on with that person. There's a saying, the clothes make the man. Certainly that is the case here. The clothes show there was something sacred going on with this man. Henry Saltel says it this way in his excellent book about the priesthood. Thus Aaron was fitted by reason of his garments for his holy office. They dignified his person, covering him with a glory and beauty which in himself he possessed not. See, the priest was to wear these clothes for glory and beauty. So he, he would stand out. If you see someone wearing this, they would certainly stand out, yes? Let, let me show it to you in a graphic. First, there was the turban with the golden plate that, that had a seal on it, which said, holy to the Lord, reminding him and others that he was set apart by God for this work. It's not being self-appointed. God appointed him. Secondly, there was his tunic made of fine linen, which was white in color, a symbol of purity. Then it says there was this waistband or sash, which was really just a belt. Now, this was the equipment of a servant. It was what held all the other fabrics in place while you worked. Now, do you remember 
the night before Jesus died on the cross, that he girded himself with a towel the night of the Last Supper and washed his disciples' feet? This is a picture of Jesus as our high priest, washing us from the sin of this world, from the soil of this world, from the, from the bitterness of this world. When John saw him in Revelation chapter 1, he says that he was girded with a golden sash, serving his people. Don't say, oh God, you can't serve me. Don't be like Peter. Remember when Peter said that to him, Jesus said, if I cannot serve you, then you will have no part in me. It takes humility to allow the high priest to serve you. Next, there was the ephod. It describes four different colors, the same as the waistband for this ephod. And the fifth color was a golden thread. How do they put gold in a garment? It tells us in Exodus 39.3, they would beat the gold into these thin sheets and then cut it into threads. So imagine a golden thread, like a golden wire. And they would weave this golden thread throughout the ephod and throughout the belt. So there was this shine to it. There was this brilliance to it. There was this amazement to it. It's really remarkable. And then the other four colors were white, blue, scarlet, and purple. Everywhere you looked in the tabernacle, same colors. White, blue, scarlet, and purple. Same colors as the veil that guarded the Holy of Holies. White, blue, scarlet, and purple. What are the significance here? Well, let me ask you this. How many gospels do we have? Four. These colors represent four different perspectives of our high priest. The white represents his purity. He was the perfect, spotless, sinless son of man. We see his humanity clearly portrayed in the gospel of Luke. We learn about his childhood and Jesus' emotional side as our great son of man, our perfect, sinless son of man. The blue is a heavenly color. Blue was the color of the sky. The the skies were referred to as as the heavens, and there was something above there. And so blue here is best portrayed in the Gospel of John as Jesus comes down from heaven. Jesus is God, the Word, become flesh, who, who dwells among us. This is what we celebrate at Christmas, Emmanuel, God with us. The scarlet represents that Jesus is our suffering servant in the Gospel of Mark. This is where he says, the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We see that clearly in the Gospel of Mark, his suffering. And then do you remember in your school days when you would mix colors in art class and you mix together the red with the blue? When you mix together the red and the blue, what'd you get? Purple. Purple is the color of the book of Matthew. It's the royal color that Jesus is the perfect son of man and son of God. He is the one who has come as the heir of the throne of David, the rightful king. So just to summarize these colors, who is Jesus? Answer, he's the perfect son of man, the son of God, the strong suffering servant, and he is our king, therefore he is our perfect high priest. That's just the ephod. It's all a picture of Jesus Christ. This is why Hebrews 4 says, therefore since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Now, it says that there's another item that the priest would wear, the breastpiece or the breastplate. This was the most expensive of all of the garments. 
and it was the most important because it contained these precious stones, one for each of the tribes of Israel. And so as the priest did his work in the tabernacle, he was to do that work as a represent, representing the people of God. And so this is expressive of, of the heart of Jesus. Again, Saltov says it this way, our great high priest now bears engraven on his very heart the names of those for whom he suffered. To him, you are precious in your Savior's heart. That's good news. Last, it says he was to wear this blue robe with bells and pomegranates along the edge so that when the priest would walk, you would hear him walking around. When he was in the Holy of Holies, in the very presence of God, you would know that he was still alive. Now, let me just make one observation about this robe. If you read Exodus 28 carefully, in verse 32, it says that this robe was specifically designed in such a way that it should never be torn. This robe was never to be torn. Now, do you remember in Mark chapter 14 when Jesus stood at his religious trial before the Sanhedrin, what the high priest Caiaphas did to his robe? He tore his robe. And in that moment, when he rendered his robe, he rendered his position as high priest in Israel as obsolete at that time. And God the Father looked down from heaven and said, I'll let that stand. Because now my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is about to serve as the great high priest on Good Friday to intercede for sinners. All this imagery is what the New Testament writers got a hold of. This was a picture of Jesus, they said. And, and let me read Hebrews 4 to you. It says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I wonder if there's anybody here this morning who's in a time of need. I wonder if there's anybody here in this morning who's not in a time of need. What do you need this morning? There are two resources available for us in this text I don't want you to miss. It is the mercy and grace of Almighty God. Mercy, meaning God withholding from us the punishment that we do deserve. And grace, meaning God giving us the blessing and favor that we don't deserve. He is there to give us mercy and grace for our time of need. This is the medicine, the cure for our disease. Jesus is like a great doctor who offers the perfect diagnosis and offers also the cure for our disease and healing. But not only that, it also says he is tender and able to empathize with us as well. I heard about a guy who had cancer, and his doctor was a young guy, really good, really smart. But he said the only tough part about this doctor was he had zero bedside manner, just really gruff and really tough and harsh the whole time, but he got through it. Then the man said, but later on, after a number of years, the cancer had come back, and I had to go for that same exact procedure to the same exact doctor, the same guy. But he said the second time when I went to see him, he was like a different person. All of a sudden, he's tender, he's understanding, he's compassionate. And the guy said, then I figured out what the difference was. 
Between my first bout and my second bout, the doctor himself had gotten the same disease and had to undergo the same treatment. Now, all of a sudden, the doctor understood and could empathize. This is the kind of high priest we have. Jesus, who came down from heaven and understood what it is to live life as a human being. You never approach Jesus and he says, I don't understand what you're talking about. He always understands. He says, I know what that's like. I know what it's like to be tempted in all respects. You've been rejected. I know what it feels like to be rejected. You've been abandoned. I know what that's like. I know what pain feels like. Whatever we go through, the Lord Jesus metaphorically can put his arm around us and say, I know. I know. Now, let me share with you a verse from Hebrews 7, 25. And I want this verse to hit you with the power that it really should. It says this, Therefore, he is able to completely, save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Save completely. Your Bible might say, save to the uttermost. He is able. The word is dunamis. It's the idea of having power or the ability to accomplish something. Jesus Christ, being fully God and fully man, is able. Only a human being should pay the penalty of the sin of humanity. Yet, only God could pay the the penalty for the sin of humanity. Therefore, we need one who is both God and both man. And this Jesus, our high priest, is able He's able to save, it says. That's the word sozo. It means to deliver, to heal, to protect, to make completely whole. It has connotations of past, present, and future. There's a sense in which we, uh, you can go back to that last slide if you would. We've been saved in the past from the penalty of sin. Uh, We're being saved in the present from the power of sin. And one day we will be saved in the future from the presence of sin. It is a complete salvation, a complete deliverance. He's able to save to the uttermost. If you could, yeah, there we go. Notice it also says, he always lives to intercede for them. Christ always lives to intercede for us. Christ always lives to intercede for us. I wonder if I would go around the room today and ask some of you, what is it that you live to do in your life? What is it that you live for? What is it that you live to do? Uh, For some people here, maybe it's their career. For others of you, maybe you live for a certain hobby. For, for others of us, maybe you live for your family or some other passion in life. Here's what I'm trying to explain to you from this text. When it comes to Jesus Christ, that which he lives to do, that which gives him the most joy, is interceding for you before his Father. Now, the only problem with all this is Jesus, as our priest, did not come from the priestly line. He came from the kingly line. That's why in the book of Hebrews, the the writer brings up this obscure figure, and he says there is another line of priesthood that many people didn't realize, and he quotes from Psalm 110, and it says this. We can put that up there again. It says, for it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, many of you probably have never heard of this man, Melchizedek. He's not a very popular Old Testament flannel graph hero that we hear about in Sunday school. He didn't kill any giants or he didn't make any walls fall down. 
But yet, this mysterious figure teaches us some very important things about Jesus and his priesthood. He says this priest, Melchizedek, received tithes from the great Abraham, which means he's greater than Abraham. And Abraham, in his loins at that time, still had Levi. So that means, in a sense, Levi paid tithes to this great Melchizedek. And it says here that his priesthood is established forever, therefore it is superior. This is the priesthood of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he is qualified to serve in this priestly line. That is his identity as our high priest. Movement two, the activity of the high priest. It was not just the priest's job to wear garments or to intercede. The priest primarily was responsible to offer animal sacrifices. This is what God had commanded. Look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 25. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It's really always been that way. Do you remember back in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned? They tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. Was that acceptable to God? No. God gave them instead animal skins. Where did he get the animal skins? He killed an animal. God covers them with a blood sacrifice, and now their sins can be covered. It's always been that way. Do you remember Cain and Abel? Both brought a sacrifice. Which sacrifice did God accept? Cain brings produce from the land. Uh, He worked really hard. There was sowing. There was reaping. uh, You know? But which one did God accept? Abel's. Wait a minute. Cain worked so hard for that. The scripture is clear. I cannot work for my own forgiveness. No matter how much work I do, I cannot do it. It's never enough. God says you need a blood sacrifice. Do you remember what happened with Moses in the Exodus? Why were the firstborn sons spared from being slaughtered in Egypt? God was clear. He said, go take a lamb and slaughter it and put the blood on the doorposts. And if so, I'll pass over you. Why? Because God requires a blood sacrifice. Remember the day of atonement. The priest had to kill one goat and sprinkle the blood from that goat on the mercy seat. Why? Because our works were never enough to cover our sins. They could not make us right before God. God has always said a sacrifice is required. And then Jesus comes on the scene, but the question then becomes for the writer of the Hebrews, what sacrifice did he bring? See, when the priest would come and offer the sacrifice, the priest would examine the lamb. And the lamb had to be without blemish. And the question was not, How clean are you? The question is, how fit and clean and perfect is your lamb? It's obvious. If the priest started looking at the person, the person would say, what are you looking at me for? It's obvious why I'm here. I've sinned. That's why I brought my lamb. The way to be forgiven is to bring a perfect spotless lamb. And then Hebrews brings this all together and says, our high priest Jesus actually becomes the sacrifice. Look at Hebrews 9. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. Amen. Now, some people read about this in the Bible, and they say, see, like that's the problem. Christianity, you know, Judaism, 
that the Bible is so culturally regressive. It's so messy and so bloody. Why do we want to follow this archaic book? The answer is this. The wages of sin is death. Our sin grosses God out just like blood grosses us out. And the sacrifice is there because the gross was so horrific and so gruesome that I never had to wonder if my sin was forgiven. The price that was paid was just so large and so clear and so final and so precious. So let me ask you something. What else are you going to do about your sin problem and your conscience problem? Do you really think you can work it off? Let me give you some options, because we got to do something. So here, here's what some people choose. Option number one, repress it. Stuff it down. Just don't think about it anymore. Pretend it's not there. Repress it. And then later in life, it'll explode like a volcano. Option two, run away from it. We can run away from God and run to other things, whether it's alcohol or drugs or some other poor substitute for being in right relationship with our creator again, the problem is it doesn't work. Option three, very popular. Rationalize it. Hey, listen, I'm not as bad as the other guy over there. Look what he did. Uh, Ligonier Ministries does what they call a state of theology in America survey every year. And they ask all these questions specifically about what evangelical Americans believe. This one particular question this year really struck my attention. 38% of those surveyed said they didn't see any problem at all with sex outside of marriage. In other words, they, they rationalized it. They disagreed that this was a sin. At first glance, it seems like there's an overall softening towards sin in our culture or a rationalization of sin in our culture. And I looked at that and I thought, but then on the other hand, (laughs) there are other sins in our culture that are really serious. And like, if you look at the hashtag MeToo movement, there are certain sins out there that our culture finds to be totally unforgivable. Like, ruin your career, you're done forever. There is no pardon for that. Other certain things in our culture, other sins like racism and elitism and bullying and sexism, those things our culture now in our moment today defines as sinful. And so it seems like just the categories kind of change and and shift around. There's some confusion going on though. On the one hand, it seems like there's a growing dismissal towards certain traditional sins in general. But then on the other hand, there's this growing vehemence toward other sins that we think are completely unpardonable. Isn't that really strange? How do we make sense of this? Christianity offers a very unique solution to this problem. Christianity teaches that the solution is never to rationalize sin or never to minimize any sin. Every sin is serious before a holy God. And yet, Christianity also teaches that any sin, without exception, any sin can be brought under the cleansing blood of the perfect spotless sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our high priest, for all of those who come to him by faith. The problem is you can't rationalize it away. The conscience won't let it go. The only solution is the one in the scriptures, and that is to reconcile with God. We must learn to reconcile with God. That's what the scriptures implore us to do. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. 
The question is how? And if you want to do that, the answer is God is very specific about how you're going to be able to be reconciled to him. The answer is very narrow. God is the one who set up the terms. The solution is a blood sacrifice. Here's what you have to believe to be reconciled with God. J.D. Greer, the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, says it well. He says this, you have to believe that you were so bad that Jesus had to save you and that he was so gracious that he was glad to save you. There's two parts there. There's bad news and then there's good news. Bad news first. The good news is that Jesus' blood and forgiveness is available to all who trust in his sacrifice. And if you do... Here's what that means. Jesus is your high priest. He is your mediator. He is your advocate before the throne of God. In the courtroom of God, before the bar of divine justice, if there's any charges against you, and there is, he becomes your representative and intercedes on your behalf there. He is your advocate, and he has a case, and it is watertight. Now, let me just give you the case, because this is, okay, let me just tell you what the case is not. This is not the case. It's not that our high priest goes before God the Father, pleads for us, and says, Father, you know, here's Dave. Did it again. Man, I think he's a half-decent guy. I think he's got some potential. Can we give him another chance? Let's give him another chance. I think maybe he'll get it right next time. One more time, let's show him a little bit more mercy. Father, let's just let this one go. That is not what's going on. I mean, if it was that way, I would be thinking... How long is this going to continue? How how long is he going to be able to keep this up? Right? He's going to run out of patience with me. Instead, that's not what the scriptures teach. The scriptures teach that there's a very, very different case going on. Here's the case. Father, here's Dave. He did it again. You know it. I know it. He knows it. It was wrong. It was a transgression. And we know, the scripture says, the soul that sins shall die. But, but, but. Father, I paid for that sin on the cross. It would be unjust to ask for that sin to be paid for twice. That's why 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It is unjust of him to exact the penalty two times. Father, I paid for that sin. I'm asking for justice. That sin has been paid for on the cross once for all. Therefore, let him go. After all, it is finished. Court is adjourned. That's good news. Here's the way the writer to the Hebrews says it. Chapter 9, 26. He has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Do you realize what that means? That means in the only court that really matters, the only opinion that matters says you're forgiven, you've been made whole again, you have been made right before God. Why? 
Because before the throne of God above, you have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives to intercede for thee. Your name is graven on his hands. Your name is written on his heart. And you'll know while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid you thence depart. That's really good news. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward for one more song. But as they do, I want to tell you one more story. There's an author I like to read named Brennan Manning. And he wrote in one of his books a very interesting story about a woman. This woman had been having visions of Jesus. And the local archbishop comes to find out more about this woman who's having visions of Jesus, because we can't have that. And so he comes to her and he asks her, have you been having visions of Jesus? And she says, yes. And she is not backing down. So he says, okay, here's what we're going to do. The next time you have one of your visions of Jesus, I want you to ask him something. She says, okay, what? He says, I want you to ask him what sin I confessed to him the night before. She says, okay, and he leaves. Later he comes back to her and he says, have you been having those visions of Jesus? She says, yeah. He says, well, did you ask him what I said? The woman said, yeah, I did ask him. And then she took the archbishop's hands in hers and said, I asked Jesus what sins you confessed at your last confession. And Jesus' exact words were, I don't remember. I asked Jesus what sins you confessed at your last confession. And Jesus' exact words were, I don't remember. Hebrews chapter 8, 12 says, when it comes to the new covenant, I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Amen. Can we pray?